but as I uh, was prepping this week, I definitely went into the week thinking, I know what I'm going to preach about. It's like, Hugh, he can tell you every day. I knew exactly what I was preaching about, and the next day it was something different. <laughs> but I knew I was going to preach. I was like, I'm going to preach on this. And then as I got into Hebrews chapter 10, man, God just gripped me every single day with something new and something fresh. And the revelations that came, and I was like, Hugh, now I'm just so excited to share on this. And then the next day, it was like, no, now I'm so <laughs> into this. So I loved my prep time, but I definitely felt like, um, this is something the church needs. Not just our church, but the church needs to hear these things out of Hebrews 10 and be stronger in the foundational truths. I felt these are elementary truths, but sometimes we don't move past the elementary because um, we need to grasp it. And God wants to reveal more to us this morning. So just uh, chapter 10 continues the theme started in chapter 8 that we've been kind of going through the last couple of weeks, uh, talking about Jesus as our great high priest and the new covenant compared to the old covenant, and um, how the Old Testament and the old ways of doing things, the Mosaic law was ineffective to do anything and powerless to do anything to cleanse anyone of sin or guilt or shame. It basically did nothing, to be quite honest. Um, and I'm preaching that 100% convinced of that, especially after my study this week. Um, it had no power to take away anything, any sin, or bring us any closer to God, the Mosaic law. As Toby pointed out last week, the law was just a shadow, just a shadow of what was to come. It literally was pointing the Israelites to Jesus. The law was pointing to the gospel the whole time. And the law was also reminding us of our sin. But that's pretty much the only thing that was accomplished by the Mosaic Law. So the writer is continuing this theme, pointing out the law, our sacrifices, our offer offerings, were never intended to satisfy God's need um, for the sacrifice for sin. But it was just always to point people to Jesus, our sympathetic high priest, the only one who could take away the sins of mankind. Why were sacrifices required? And maybe some of you think this is elementary, but for me it was really good to go over why were sacrifices required. And I realized coming from a really traditional church background, as maybe some of you have, so much emphasis was placed on God's holiness, his wrath and his need, his holiness, he can't handle sin or look on sin, and so his need for justice and for some payment for sin. And while I believe that's true, I think... Possibly, we've overemphasized that at the revelation of God's heart for relationship with us, his desire for intimacy with us. And I know that that's hard, a hard concept, especially if we don't have intimacy with our own earthly fathers um, or those kinds of relationships. We would rather emphasize the holy, wrathful, vengeful God that needed and demanded justice, which I do, I am not refuting that at all, but I am saying God always wanted relationship with his people. Always. So that's why he needed a sacrifice for sin. Because look at Adam and Eve in the garden. He walked with them in the garden. He wanted to be with and amongst them, speaking to them, just like we are, face to face. That was God's intent. That was his design. And we, because of sin, became aware of our guilt and shame. We suddenly became aware, Adam became aware that he was naked. He became aware that he needed clothes and that he couldn't come in front of God because of his guilt and shame. 
So our guilt and shame needed to be dealt with. Because why? Because it separated us from relationship and intimacy with a loving father who wanted to walk and be amongst us and with us. Isn't that much different than wrathful, holy God who can't look at you because you've sinned? I'm not saying God is not holy. You understand what I'm saying. But the emphasis has not always been very balanced. So I want to say this morning, God has always wanted intimacy with us. That's why he needed a sacrifice for sin. That's one of the reasons he needed a sacrifice for sin. And um, doing, I've kind of already gone off my notes, but Hebrews says, what, what this chapter keeps saying is doing religious rituals and doing the same things over and over and repeatedly, anything we can bring, um, you know, none of those things clear us of our guilt and bring us closer to God. We can't get closer to God that way. So why was Jesus' sacrifice so pleasing? Why was his sacrifice? This uh, writer of Hebrews, in this chapter, he addresses that. And I love what he has to say. But first, the author shows us and reminds us of the ineffectiveness of the law again. And you may be sitting there saying, I don't sacrifice bulls and goats in my yard, Vanessa. I know I'm not practicing the Mosaic law. Why does this apply? None of us are practicing the Mosaic law, right? Last I checked. Maybe you are, but... You know, you definitely don't need to. So, uh, but the law applies to us today because the law represents anything we do trying to get closer to God in our effort. Anything. And so unless any of us can sit here and say, I never do anything to try to get close to God on my own, trusting in my own efforts, my own ability to do things, then we cannot say that this doesn't apply. So when we speak of the Old Testament Mosaic law, it definitely applies to us now because it's saying anything that we can do or bring or our human efforts to try to get to closer to God when Jesus has already done it all and there is nothing between us and God nothing do we know that today is that not the best news there's nothing between us and God nothing so I'm really passionate today just be ready guys verse 1 says Let's look at verse 1. The law, ooh, this is tiny, I'm sorry. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. Again, the law was just a shadow. I'm going to say it again. The law was just pointing us to Jesus. The law was never God's plan, and we failed, and we didn't live up to the law, so then he had to send Jesus. No, the law was never his intention. It was always a prophetic picture pointing us to Jesus, always. His plan was always to send Jesus, always. I love that. It doesn't mean the law was evil. It doesn't mean the law was from the devil. It just means that there was a lot of misuse of the law and a lot of overemphasis on it, and that was what was incorrect. When actuality, it was a prophetic picture pointing people to the gospel, pointing the Israelites to the gospel. So let's read on. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeatedly, endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, see again, God's heart, that he wants us to be able to draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all, and would no longer have felt guilt for their sins. But those sacrifices are just an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So now I do need, I want to take a moment to address something that um, I feel like is important that this verse, as I was studying, 
This verse and chapter completely rules out the idea that the Lord's Supper or communion is in any way a continuation of Christ's sacrifice and completely rules that out. It says so clearly here, repeated sacrifices do nothing to cleanse us from sin. Jesus died once for all. So communion is not a... Does anyone know that there's some teachings like that out there where communion is like a continuation of Christ's sacrifice or his actual body and blood? Guys, this teaches that's not it. Jesus doesn't continually die. His sacrifice doesn't continue on. It is once for all. Anything else is not correct. It... Um, are you guys with me? I know I'm going to bring it strong this morning. If Jesus, uh, so let me get back on track. If, if we think this way about communion, it's an overemphasis on communion. Obviously, we start then emphasizing communion like it's so important. It is important because it's one of the things God asks us to do, but an overemphasis on it or um, thinking it's, you know, maybe worshiping communion a bit, or some people get into that. So Jesus' death, again, once for all, one time, there was nothing hokey or mystical happening when we take communion. It literally is, take time out with the body of Christ. Friends, followers of Jesus, take time out, break bread. You can do it in your home. Break bread, have a meal together. Why? To remember the sacrifice. To actually take time to intentionally, Jesus, right now, guys, can you believe what Jesus did for us on the cross? Be intentional about remembering it. That's what communion is. That is what it is. Remember that the one-time sacrifice of Jesus, be intentional to take time to remember that. It, that cleanses us of our sins forever. And his sacrifice does so much more than that, we're going to see. So don't get caught up in religious rituals, thinking they can bring us any closer to God. Communion. It's the same with Lent. It's the same with confession. It's the same with any of these things we do that we think are bringing us closer to God. How can we get closer to God? We already are. The curtain is torn. We're in. There is no other thing we need to do. And I mean that as strong. I was preaching it in the mirror at myself this week. And he was like, was the mirror talking back? No, but I was on fire. <laughs> this is it. The curtain is torn. We're in. We can't do anything. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence only based on the blood of Jesus. Only. I have to remind myself of that. We think we bring something, but we don't. And I'm passionate because this moved me this week. It just moved me. There are teachings out there that say, if you do this or you do that, you can be a little closer to God or you can know God more. No. You can come to him anytime. You're in. We're the only ones who need to do anything, and that's draw near. He did everything. Jesus is amazing. Are you guys okay? You're hanging with me. <laughs> so I'm going to transition. So the Mosaic law was almost useless, except to give a picture to the Israelites of the, gospel, of the gospel and to remind us of our sin and our need for Jesus. The law was not plan A. It didn't work. You know, we failed and didn't measure up, so God had to send Jesus. Just remember that those are fundamental elementary truths that we need to know and know them really well. So now, in stark contrast to the law, we see Jesus' sacrifice. And his sacrifice held immense power. It held immense power. It sanctified us forever. Forever. That's amazing. Anyone ever been in churches where, the, like, you know, you're constantly on a sanctifying journey, you're always trying to be sanctified and always try to be better? 
when it says here, you're holy and blameless for forever. Do you believe that? Do we believe Hebrews? I had to ask myself, do I believe Hebrews? I'm holy, righteous, perfect, sanctified forever. Before Jesus. Before the Father. Totally accepted based on nothing but Jesus' blood. Amen. That is something. I am like so fired up about this. You guys can see. I know. You're like, whoa, Vanessa, you've been on something this morning. Okay. Let's pick it up in verse 5. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. I'm going to read that again because I read it 50 times this week. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. He never desired. He never desired our sacrifice and offering. But a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Never would please him. Never. Then I said, here am I. This is Jesus talking. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. Jumping to verse 10. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, forever. That is good, good news. Jesus' sacrifice sanctified us. We have been made holy we can come before the Father. I think I've said that like 10 times. I think I'm going to say it more. God never wanted our offerings and sacrifices. Let that sink in. He desired someone who would do his will. He desired someone who would do his will. He desired a perfect obedience and devotion to him. Can you do that? Can I do that? No. We can never in all our futile attempts in a million years, ever, fulfill God's will perfectly, be perfectly obedient to the Father, or do anything that Jesus did. Never. Only Jesus. Only Jesus could be perfectly obedient to the Father. Let's look at Jesus' sacrifice and why it had so much power. Firstly, Jesus was completely yielded to God in the flesh. Can you do that? I can't do that. We can never do that. He always did the will of the Father, but only Jesus could do that. We could never. In all, I said that already. So Jesus did it for us. That's the good news. We don't need to do it. We don't need, Jesus did it for us. But so many Christians, and myself included, still live like we're trying to do what only Jesus could do and what he already did. We still try to be perfect. And we still try to be better. And somehow more acceptable to God. And somehow more holy. But Jesus did that all for us. So we have that all. It's been given to us. So we emphasize the wrong things. Myself included. I was like, I do this. I try to be more perfect. We could never. We could never. Jesus could only. Jesus did, already did, done. And sometimes the church still focuses on being more acceptable to God, and we miss the point. That's amazing. No repeated sacrifice needed or required. Nothing else required. That is what Hebrews teaches. That is scandalous grace. That is amazing grace. That is what Hebrews teaches. God has always desired intimacy, and now Jesus made us complete 
worshipers. Because of Jesus, we're complete worshipers, meaning we can come free of guilt, free of shame. Not because we didn't do anything wrong yesterday. We just come free of guilt, free of shame because of Jesus. Because we're washed again. We're cleansed again. Because we need it. He did it once, but sometimes we have to remind ourselves. That made us complete worshipers. Again, what God's desire always was. That we could come to him free and clear. How can you have intimacy with someone if you have guilt and shame? You can't have any intimacy if you feel guilt and shame. It gets in the way. So that's why God wanted it dealt with. I mean, that just made so much sense to me this week. So I'm sharing this because I'm like, it wowed my mind again. So Jesus was perfectly obedient in the flesh. Secondly, Jesus' offering was the end of all ritualistic offerings. The end. Which were at best symbolic. Remember, they did nothing to cleanse anyone of any sin. They didn't do anything to bring us any closer to God. They didn't allow us to come be true worshipers. The real sacrifice was Jesus, and so ritualistic sacrifices were no longer needed. Thirdly, Jesus fulfilled God's will. He was the fulfillment of the law. If the law was a shadow pointing to Jesus, Jesus came law fulfilled. And he also fulfilled God's plan to deal with sin because we know he sat down. He sat down when his work was done. What he did was final. He dealt with sin and he sat down. And I'm going to get to the sat down part. I love the sat down part. And fourthly, Christ's righteousness became ours forever. Going back to verse 10, we're sanctified once and forever through Jesus' death and sacrifice. It's hard to accept, but we really just have to receive that. This means we should have no doubts or fears about our salvation, ever. Once you've accepted Jesus, you're, you have the righteousness of Christ given to you for forever. It's like a blanket or a cloak on us. The Bible speaks of being clothed in God's righteousness. That's what God sees. He doesn't see all our markings and all our stuff anymore. He sees the righteousness of Jesus like we're covered in a blanket, and that's the only thing he sees. Verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Again, the contrast here between the weak ministry of the human priests compared to the powerful ministry of Jesus. And I'm just going to highlight three of the comparisons. First, the human priests had to stand. They were never allowed to sit. There was no chair even, I read, in the tabernacle, signifying that their work was never done. They had to keep repeating the same religious things over and over again, every day, every year. Um, and... They do nothing to bring them closer to God. In contrast, Jesus finished the work of providing purification for sins for all time. That's the work he finished. He didn't finish every single work, but he finished that work of purifying people from sins for all time. And he sat down at the right hand of God. The priest could never sit. Jesus sat down, showing it was final, it was done, Nothing else was needed, nothing else required to sanctify anyone of sins once you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Every sin 
Every sin for every single person, every past, present, future sin, any sin that was ever committed was covered by Jesus' death. That's amazing. And thirdly, I love verse 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever. How long? Forever. Those who are being made holy. By a single sacrifice, God's people have been given a status of perfect in God's presence. You're stamped perfect in God's presence. That's an amazing thing. And now God graciously extends his kingdom through us. He graciously extends his kingdom through us and wants to reach people through us, even amidst persecution, even amidst, you know, obstacles, God's plan, his reign, his kingdom, his rule keeps advancing and keeps moving forward and his plans will succeed. And Satan and sin, sickness, disease, death, all will be done away with. And Jesus has won. And the Bible says, at the name of Jesus, one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the work of making us holy and acceptable to God is done. Jesus did it. We do nothing except receive. We're perfect in God's eyes. Cannot become more acceptable to God based on anything we do. It doesn't mean we don't have anything to do. The writer goes on. He gives us some things to do. <laughs> he gives us some things to do. We're called to persevere in faith. So Jesus did all of this. Can we persevere in faith? I can. I said, you know what, Lord? I can do that. After this week of reading this, and I'm reminded of everything Jesus accomplished for us, I think we can persevere in our own faith, right? In our own trusting in God and believing God. Let's look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. So because we have this complete confidence in our sins forgiven, this amazing access into the holiness, the holy of holies, God's presence, his throne room, and we're accepted, These, there's a few things God asks. He wants us to draw near to him. God asks us to draw near to him. He never went anywhere. He doesn't go anywhere. He's always there. So we draw near to him. That's our part. Constantly coming to the Father for help. To be filled in the battles, to be filled after and during the battles. For guidance, we come to the throne room. We come for guidance in every situation. We come to have burdens lifted, burdens of sin, guilt lifted. We draw near to God with a sincere and open and transparent heart. God wants us to come with a true and sincere heart, a heart that actually is desiring him. Um, it's hard to have that if we've hardened because of disappointments of life. It's hard to have that if you're angry. It's hard to have that if we have unforgiveness. It's hard to have that if we feel abandoned by God. It's hard to draw near. So we draw near 
with a sincere heart coming to the Father, knowing that we need help, knowing that we need grace, knowing we need mercy in our time of need. And we can receive everything we need from him. Everything. Peace, comfort, help, wisdom, freedom, healing, clarity, breakthrough, rest. Receive everything in the throne room of grace. And again, there's nothing between us and God. So we just draw near to him. Anytime. Second, we're to hold fast or unswervingly to the hope we profess. So it's like when you're first saved. Some of you got saved maybe later in life. Some of you um, earlier in life. But you're excited. You, you profess and you tell people about Jesus. You have this enlightening moment of this revelation of Jesus. And that's the kind of the unswerving, the way we should hold on to hope. That kind of hope, that kind of um, feeling that we had when we first got saved, which wears off, right, as you, as life, as you do life and as you grow in, with the Lord. We need to hold unswervingly to that hope. And don't lose hope. Hope is future thinking. Hope is faith for tomorrow. Even when tomorrow can look bleak, we still hold on to hope. That's what Jesus asks us to do. I love this. Um, one commentator said this about this passage. He said, Our hope for the future grows by bold acquaintance with the throne of God's grace. I'll read it again. Our hope for the future grows by bold acquaintance with the throne of God's grace. So I took that to mean being well acquainted with coming to God and receiving from him will grow our capacity for hope because we know his goodness. We know his love. We've experienced his mercy. We've experienced the times where he's come when we needed him. So be well acquainted with the throne room of grace. Why do we hold on to hope? It says here, because he who promised is faithful. Because our God's a faithful God. He's faithful. He's true to his word. He's going to do what he said he's going to do. That's why we hold on to hope. Sometimes it's not good enough, right? We want answers. We want to know what the future is going to hold. But God says we can hold on to hope because he's faithful. The faithfulness of God is reason enough for us. And I didn't read this part of that verse, but it also goes on to say, encourage one another. Encourage one another. We're called to encourage each other um, and spur each other on in love and good deeds. So this idea of it's just me and Jesus, I don't need anyone else, this kind of, that kind of Christianity, is not in the Bible. We need the body. We need to belong to a local church family. And we need to allow ourselves to be encouraged, allow people to come alongside when maybe we have lost heart. Maybe we have stopped believing um, God for some things because it's hard. Or maybe our hearts have become hardened. We need the body to help spur us on and um, to encourage us to keep going. Encourage us to keep having faith, to keep going with Jesus. So guys, be together. I know that COVID and all this stuff has caused us to be more isolated. It's definitely harder. But be intentional now more than ever. Um, utilize the ways we have to be together as a body, to encourage one another because we need it, and because it's God's will for us. So just be intentional. Have people around in the ways that you can, where it's safe, obviously. You can't expect somebody else to do it for you. We have to each be intentional to press in with the body. And this chapter finishes 
I didn't, I, I'm skipping some verses, but I'm ending with the last verse of this chapter. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Now is not the time to shrink back. And that doesn't mean rebel against the government, and I don't know, some people doing some crazy stuff. It doesn't mean that. We're not supposed to shrink back. What, what does it mean? I think not shrinking back means now's the time to hold unswervingly to our hope and to keep trusting in Jesus. That's what it means. Just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Just keep going in the things that he's called you to. That's what not shrinking back looks like to me. Being bold in our faith in Jesus. Keep going in what he's called us to. Sometimes we want to have the big breakthroughs, right? We're looking for the big breakthroughs. God, wipe out coronavirus. Wipe it out, right? You, and, I mean, we will pray those prayers. I've prayed those prayers, and we do want that. But sometimes that's not what it is. Sometimes we want to go back to the way things were, or we get gripped by fear and can't move because of change and the hard things. That happens to me. But actually, this is a time for us to practice our faith to put our, our faith into action and actually live out what we believe. It's in the valleys, it's in the lows that we actually put our faith into practice. Um, one of my friends put something beautiful, if hopefully I don't mess it up, on Instagram, and it said, don't forget in the darkness what was learned in the light. And I loved that. Because there are darks, there are lows, there are times where the world looks bleak. So let's not forget what God's shown us in the light and in the high times. And put the things into practice that he's shown us, that he's good, that we can trust him. You may be saying, how do I move forward when the world is in chaos, or nothing is the way I thought it would be, or nothing has turned out like I thought it would be? I had all these plans, and the year pretty much wiped them all out. But what God desires from us hasn't changed, and I've just found so much peace um, instead of wondering, Lord, how can I fix all these things? How can I take on the problems of the world? How can I help? How can I do all this? I found so much peace, and it just comes down to what does God actually desire of us? What does he actually ask of us? And I put down three things. God desires our trust in him. Trust in the promises of God over your life. He desires our trust. He's, he's pleased with our trust. His promises still are true over my life and yours. Even though everything's harder right now, and it's easy to say it's too hard, I'm done. <laughs> Things aren't the same, you know, like we said. But God is faithful to fulfill every promise and every word over each of us and over this church. So keep trusting God. He desires our trust. Secondly, he desires our gratitude. He desires our gratitude. Give thanks. Practice giving thanks. Thankfulness is a powerful tool that we have to shift our hearts and our attitudes, and it brings us in the presence of God. You may say, how is giving thanks going to help with all the struggles that I have to face right now and the challenges? But it does. God wants us to have gratitude. It does shift your perspective to what you have instead of what you don't have, right? I have to remind myself all the time. And he desires our worship. He desires our worship. Worship in the hard places. Worship in the valleys. Worship. We always worship. Just always worship. Just always worship God. So he desires our trust. He desires our gratitude. And he desires our worship. And that's what I have for us this morning.